There's a ton here, and I, I can't address everything in this gospel. There's just too much. Setting the stage again, this goes on for weeks. We go through Matthew's gospel, there's part of his gospel. Well, we go through his gospel all year, but this part of the gospel where Jesus is on this hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and this is where he gives these instructions to multitudes of people. This is where the famous Beatitudes are given. All right, so Jesus is introducing these people to a lot of new concepts. One of them is the kingdom of heaven. Be, be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So for the Jews, they knew Sheol existed, they knew hell existed, but they didn't know that heaven existed. That's, that's not a Jewish thing. Heaven was the word paradise that the Iranians had or the Persians, but it wasn't a concept for them. It wasn't until Jesus died on Calvary, descended into Sheol, and then on into hell, that the people in Sheol were released for heaven. So he's talking about a future place, heaven, that doesn't yet exist for anyone other than God and his angels. All right, that's one thing that's really new to the Jews, is hearing this rabbi, this Jewish teacher, teach about heaven. So they're probably wondering, where are you getting at? The other is here that the Lord is saying that we have to observe the commandments. But the commandments that he's referring to here are the moral commandments. So there are 613 Jewish commandments called the Mosaic Law. And of that, only 10 are moral commandments, the Ten Commandments. The other 603 are all kinds of ritualistic laws about how you butcher animals and and how you prepare food and wash your hands and change linens and wash kettles and all kinds of things about how the Jews are supposed to ritualistically live. Those will all go away. But the commandments here that he says, uh, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of the letter will ever pass away, are the moral commandments. Those are for eternity. And then he proceeds to address them. But the next thing that's a real shocker for the Jews, or something that's totally new, is Jesus is saying, I want you to be virtuous. So for the Jews, they've just got their checklist. I've got 613 things that if I live by these things, I keep checking this list and after a while of living this, it becomes habitual and I don't even have to think about it. As long as I'm doing that, I'm right with God and that's the end of it. But here Jesus is saying, no, it's about a lot more than that. When you hear God say, do not kill anyone, hear him also saying, don't kill anyone with your heart either. So underneath the commandment, that shall not kill, he's saying, but I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother will be held liable. You have to be able to let go, forgive, be at peace. And if you're not, then God has a problem with that. And this is new to them. He's not only saying, you shall not sleep with your neighbor's wife. He's also saying, if you lust after another woman, you've already committed adultery. So now he's getting into the virtues. And for the Jews, this is new. They haven't, Moses and none of their prophets and teachers have ever taught them about this. The Greeks are the ones who developed the virtues, Aristotle and the others. And they're aware of the Greeks because it's all Eastern Mediterranean and the Greeks were very influential in the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean region. So they're very familiar with Greeks. But that's a Greek thing. And there are Gentiles and pagans. They're not Jews. 
But here Jesus is saying, no, we need to be virtuous, which is undergirding the commandments. And then there's a final one that I'll get to in a moment. Well, I better get to it now or forget it. The final one is this. And he doesn't say it yet, but I think he says it next week. You can look and see. Yes, next Sunday. And I think it concludes his time on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He concludes this great teaching by saying, So be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Another way to understand that is, be holy. For the Jews, there's only one who's holy, God. That's it. He's the only one. You wouldn't call another human being holy. Jesus himself, being this Jewish rabbi, he's challenged by the Pharisees in one place, and he says, and reserving that only God is holy, and then he proceeds with something he's saying. So for the Jews, they understood that God is God, and we're not God, and we can't be like God. But Jesus will conclude this teaching by saying, be like God. So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is the third revolutionary thing. One, heaven. The second is virtues. And the third is be holy, be godlike. For the Jews, this is, this is an avalanche of new information. This is, whoa. Maybe for cradle Catholics who've been going to Mass all your life, all these three things are taken for granted. Heaven, being virtuous, and being holy are all just kind of part and parcel of being a Christian. But all of this is totally new for the Jews. Totally new for them to hear these things. But I want to talk about virtue and holiness. On our walls, we've got those great examination of conscience guides. Those how to go to confession guides on the walls outside the confession here. And inside of it is a fantastic pages long examination of conscience of a checklist of Moral sins, things that they're by themselves evil, and if done with knowledge and freedom at the time, they would constitute a moral sin. All right. For 99 plus percent of the human race, we stay stuck on that list because we keep doing things on that list. All right. That's pretty much all non Catholics and the vast majority of Catholics. But there are some Catholics who reach this point in their life where they don't do anything on those lists anymore, they've overcome that. And then they go to confession and they say, Father, I don't, I don't know what to confess. Or they confess the one thing they always do. Well, I'm struggling with impatience because my husband's such a horrible person. But that's his problem, but I'm struggling with patience. Sort of thing. So people are grasping it. Well, why do the saints go to confession a couple times a month? Why did John Paul go once a week? Why did Mother Teresa of Calcutta go once a week? What are they confessing? There's nothing on that list anymore that they're doing. Or if they had ever done it, and those two had said, John Paul said, by grace of God, I'm not aware of ever having committed a mortal sin in my life. Teresa of Calcutta didn't know what a mortal sin was until she entered the convent as a teenager, and they were teaching them. No, she wasn't even there yet. She was in middle school, and she was at some sort of parish catechetical event, and she discovered what a mortal sin was. And she vowed then and there never, ever to commit one in her life. Why are they going to confession every week? Because they're seeing underneath the commandment. 
They're seeing the virtues or the vices that undergird the entire moral law. Here's an example of something. Somebody gives another person a piece of carrot cake because they know that you like carrot cake. So I'm going to give you a piece of carrot cake because I want you to be happy and enjoy this moment with the carrot cake. All right. That can be a good intention, a virtuous intention to please another in some in a way that's not morally bad. All right. But what if the motivation is, I want to give you this so that you'll like me. Well, now the reason for doing it is completely changed. What if I'm giving this to you so that you'll have to do something for me? Now it's manipulation. It's a vice and it's actually a sin in this situation to give the carrot cake to the other person. This is the virtues and the vices that our Lord is trying to talk about underneath all of the commandments or the checklist sort of thing. When we go through life, we can look at a lot of different things and discover, I guess I'm not perfect. I guess I could go to confession every week of my life if I had this kind of an examination of conscience as to what was motivating me to think as I thought or to say as I did or to do as I did or the other whopper or sense of omission, my failure to even try to be a saint. Because Jesus, when he commands and says, do this... He means do it, and that means everybody. So when he says, so be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect, it's a commandment. So in what way in the last week or month or year of my life have I not tried to be perfect? That is to say, like God. Well, I can, boy, then the list gets huge, doesn't it? I don't think any of the saints watch television. It didn't line up with what God wanted them to be doing with their time and their life. So many things, so many things. If we were to think with the mind of God, He wants me to be a saint. Well, then what in my life do I need to move on from or get rid of? What in my life is a stumbling block? What in my life is a a false God, an idol? That instead of me capturing it, it has captured me. What do I covet and is not of God? What is my motivation for doing what I'm doing? When we look at those things and we begin, this is like a whole universe opens before us of all kinds of things where we think, oh wow, if I actually sat down at a desk with silence and stillness, a pad, a paper, and a pencil, and just started writing these thoughts down. And then I did that multiple different times. It would be amazing what would begin to appear on the paper. And then I'd begin to see who I really am before God. And where I need to go. Which is where my home will end. This idea of being holy. Father Nathan talks about being holy all the time. It's his thing. It is my thing. I keep bringing it up all the time. It's, it's getting old, and it's onerous to hear about it. Oh, what an imposition upon me to try to be holy. All right. That's kind of the, the human instinct, because it is a real challenge. By the grace of God, we can. But fortunately, Jesus Christ has instructed us. That's what the Bible is. It's God speaking to us. And he's given us the sacraments, which give us grace to do it. 
So he's given us the means to be holy, to be godlike. But then we don't do it. We go, well, that's really super hard. I, you know, I've tried and failed. I'm a sinner, da-da-da. So I won't try. I'll just do what I'm comfortable doing. It's up to that extent. Here's the thing. Is our ability to be like God, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, to be holy, to be a saint, is not our contribution to God. It's God's gift to us. It's Jesus, his gift to the Jews in front of them. How to be like God. How to be God-like. I'm gifting you right now with this. And how many will take them up on it? Precious few. But imagine a world in which there were no saints. There was no St. Francis. And there was no St. Catherine of Siena or Therese of Lisieux or John Paul II or Teresa of Calcutta. A world where there were no saints. And that was the world before Jesus entered it. There were no saints. There were no saints. The saints have changed the world. They converted the world enough to give the world civilization as we know it. Without the saints, the church would have disappeared 2,000 years ago. And we'd still be walking around with loincloths and hitting each other with clubs over the head and dragging off our captors kind of thing. The saints have changed the world. And the world is indebted to them. Saints are really good. They're a really, really good thing. The ability to become one is very special. And the Lord is giving every one of us the ability to do it. So it's something, instead of being frightened of, or even being resentful that it's being asked of me, but it's something to be grateful for. It's something to aspire to. To be a saint. To be like God. So this, just try. I know at the rate, at the speed I'm going, I'm not going to become a canonized saint. That's just what it is. I'm not going to. And that's disappointing to me that I'm not going to make it at the rate I'm going, unless there's some breakthroughs. But I know that my effort is something that the Lord sees and he's very happy about and very proud of. And because I tried, I made some effort. I know that it's helped you. And I know at the end of my life, our Lord has a place waiting for me. So take Jesus up on the great challenge, on the great supernatural opportunity to be a saint and to change the world.